0: In a world where talent is evenly distributed, but venture capital is concentrated in coastal silos, smart startup money is heading for the mid-continent. Welcome to the Midcon Markup, a podcast that uncovers the inspiring stories of our visionary tech entrepreneurs and the investors who believe in them. I'm your host, Cody Merrill with Cortado Ventures. Listen, learn, and make your Midcon markup. Welcome everybody to the Midcontinent Venture Capital podcast. I'm here today with Allison Watkins from Watkins Conte Products. Excited to learn more about what she's up to today, but let's uh, go ahead and start things off just with your background. Um, You know, can start with what your childhood was like from there, early stages of your career.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, So hi, I'm Allison Watkins and I was born in Austin, Texas and raised in a tiny little town called Pampa, Texas and um, was raised in a family of entrepreneurs. So my grandfather, um, owned Gibson stores and also the real estate. And then, um, he was in oil and gas exploration and development. And my father went into the same in commercial real estate. And so I think I just learned about entrepreneurship early on, whether I wanted to or not at the dinner table over Christmas, you know, all of the challenges and, um, and all of the big wins as well. So it's kind of what it was like growing up. And then, um, I I love music, so I actually ended up going into radio and um, was in radio sales for a few years and then um, went to News 9, worked at the CBS affiliate here at Oklahoma, and then... um, had a baby, became a mother. and
0: Were you a reporter there? What were you doing?
1: No, I was in sales. Okay. So the television commercials. Gotcha. So when I became a mom, I was working a lot of hours. And so some of my clients wanted to come with me. And so I started a little advertising agency working out of home and then also ran um, the back end of a plumbing, heating and air company and then invested in some real estate, had an 11 pound baby, a problem that I was trying to solve, and liquidated my assets and put all of my life savings into what is now Waikins Conti Products.
0: Okay, so, for the for the men listening, <laughs> how rare is an 11 pound baby?
1: Very rare. She's amazing. She's miraculous. She's incredible, um, in many ways. But yes, it's very uncommon. So it's almost the size of two babies, like twins come out being like five to six pounds each. So. People would ask me if I was having twins and it was not a fun question.
0: <laughs> she was just extra special.
1: She still is extra special.
0: Still is extra special. <laughs> so walk me through the the epiphany moment with Watkins Conti. Like, how is it that you felt the need and then decided, you know what? I'm going to be the person to solve this problem and take it to market.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, how graphic should I get in this discussion? Because it's quite personal and vulnerable. So, well, let's get I guess. as graphic as you want, and then you, you can always <laughs> can to to, uh, cut out later. <laughs> we can edit. So, so yes. Yeah, so, towards the end of my pregnancy, my my daughter was so heavy that I was experiencing um, involuntary urine leakage. Uh, which was painful, I think more on the mental health side of things than anything else. And then I kind of thought that was going to go away. I didn't realize that it was something that was chronic. Um, I had experienced it a little bit before with my son after like whenever I would go to boot camp and do jumping jacks and I was a runner at the time. And so with running, I had a little leaking, but nothing major. Um, And then I really, really love kickboxing. And so after my daughter was born, I was trying to get back into shape, was doing kickboxing Was on my menstrual cycle using a big tampon. And I realized that with that vaginal insert, I wasn't leaking as much urine whenever I was doing like my plyometrics, jumping jacks. And so I just started to study, like, why is this? I went on the Mayo Clinic website. There's a nice, robust library that um, you can access publicly. And then it was just like this aha moment for me. You know, I just thought, okay, there's this is simple. Why is there not anything else like this out there? So then I, start, I went to the USPTO website, you can search, you know, different um, things that have been patented, and I couldn't find anything. And obviously, there wasn't anything in the marketplace for me. So, so yeah, that's when I thought, you know, with my marketing background and sales with, um, you know, advertising, when I recognized that at some point in our lives, three and four women will experience this.
0: What? 75% of
1: women? 75% of women over the age of 60 experience stress urinary incontinence or some some form of incontinence.
0: And is it is it always connected with pregnancy or is it usually no. connected? Okay.
1: No. I mean, I know young girls that are cheerleaders that are in high school that leak urine whenever they're doing their tumbling passes. And um, it's very very common with athletes and crossfitters. And, and, of course, it does start oftentimes after women have children. And then as we get older, I mean, it's, it's just the anatomy and gravity, the two. You
0: have to raise money from men as well as women. I imagine you face this a lot of the times where you're trying to tell the story, but it's maybe hard for the other person to fully appreciate.
1: Absolutely. It's been very, very interesting. In the early stages, hired a doctor to come out to my office and explain to me how to describe the solution in an anatomically correct way, so that I wasn't just saying "vagina" <laughs> in rooms full of men. Because it was obvious whenever I would talk, like you know, whenever I would just be using lay terms, um, people would get uncomfortable.
0: So it's a, it's a uh, very personal problem and story. Was it hard for you to start talking about it publicly?
1: Right. It's still I imagine a, it it's, still it's, is. It still is hard for me to tell my personal story publicly. But I know that so many women experience this that I feel convicted in a way. Like I have to do this. This is this is what I'm this is what I do now.
0: <laughs> so have you always had that sense of justice, that moral fortitude that feeling like you have an obligation to stand up for what you believe in. And that's just something you've always had
1: just in my core. I mean, I can remember I've, I've done all kinds of different things. I've bartended way tables, things in that nature. And I just could never like morally <laughs> feel good about what I was doing. I knew that I needed to do something that I felt like was, you know, serving people, but that I could also um, make money at
0: lots of people have great ideas particularly for inventions mm-hmm. and everybody just wants to be the idea person and it's like oh wait well, yeah wouldn't it be great if this thing existed and i got rich from it it's quite a different thing to say i have such a connection with this problem i'm going to solve it whatever gaps in my pre-existing knowledge or experience i will plug those gaps What was that journey like for you? Like, when did you call yourself an entrepreneur, right? Like, when did it go from, Mm -hmm. oh, this is kind of a project to like, you introduced yourself to other people like, this is what I'm doing.
1: Oh, gosh, I don't even know if I can pinpoint exactly when that was. I remember my brother would introduce me as an inventor. And I felt like that was so absurd, you know, like just that word. Um, But now I proudly, you know, because I have so many patents, I'm proud of that but um well don't be humble tell us about your patents um well we've got patents all over the country or all over the world now we just got our european patents so there are several countries in europe so i don't even know right now how many patents we have but there are three utility patents that are all in different all of these different countries and first it started with urinary incontinence and the method of use and also just the utilitary function of the device it's called a utility patent not a design patent um, we've got design patents, though, so on kits. We've got trademarks. Um, but when COVID hits, um, our clinical trials shut down, and I just couldn't stop going. So I started writing intellectual property around. I started thinking about women and what we have to deal with. We have to go to the gynecologist. We have to get in stirrups. And it's very vulnerable. It's just very uncomfortable. I don't know anybody that likes it. So I started thinking about different things that we can do with silicon vaginal inserts for diagnostics and different, you know, drug delivery opportunities and things of that nature and started patenting all of those. And so now we have a really nice, robust portfolio. So Watkins Conti products at one time was just a urinary incontinence company, and now we're a female pelvic health company um, with our intellectual property portfolio.
0: In terms of the difference between a utility patent and a design patent, no. how much more powerful and defensible is a utility patent?
1: Well, I can't say because I'm not a lawyer, but it's it's different in the sense that with a design patent, you can draw a different design. It's aesthetic. So you can, you know, change it slightly the way that it looks, and boom, it's a different patent. And with a utility patent, it's actually the functionality of the product that you've created. It's not just the shape, it's actually what it does. So
0: not having an industrial design background, mm-hmm. how did you go about designing your first insert?
1: Yep. So I, like I said, went on the Mayo Clinic website. I, At the time, I was doing pelvic floor rehabilitation, so I was trying to improve my condition through my doctor. Um, and so I drew some pictures, and I took an NDA to the physician, and I said, hey, can you sign this? I, I have an idea. <laughs> and so they did, and I showed you them a it. picture. You yes, actually, I've uh-huh. had several doctors now sign NDAs that I um, scheduled appointments with as patients, because I was just trying to get in. <laughs> but that was kind of was validated time. the concept, in a way, Was yeah. were those conversations. Um, and so then I just found a woman in katusa oklahoma that could take my drawing and put it in cad and then i found a company that would um manufacture just like prototypes for me i also worked with um ou they have the fabrication lab and they actually put together some 3d printed prototypes right before we had our final design because the manufacturing of these devices And a 100% medical grade silicone that's compliant with the FDA that can be used in the body is an expensive tool to invest in. And so I have now in my office, I have several different prototypes um, along the way. The first thing I did was hire a woman. I think I paid her $600 in Catoosa, Oklahoma to draw this up in CAD. And and then I sent it off to have a prototype made. And then in the spirit of real entrepreneurship, used it myself and... (laughs) Um, continued to modify from there um, to make sure it was comfortable and efficacious.
0: So what is the process like to get FDA approval for a device versus drug development?
1: So it depends on the class. So there are different classes. So if it's not an insert, it's a class one. And because this is inserted into the body, it's a class two. If you can have a predicate device, which is something that Is similar but not exactly the same, um, then it's a little bit less stringent. And if there's been proof that that predicate device is non-invasive, it's a little less stringent. So that would be called an IDE exemption. Um, And then from there, you, you know, I mean, of course, now I know this, but I had to hire regulatory experts to educate me on this. But there are many different facets of this FDA approval process that people don't understand. Like, It's not just clinical trials, it's, we had to do biocompatibility testing um, to ensure that after the manufacturing process that um, it's not going to interact with the body in a way that's toxic um, or that'll cause irritation or sensitization, cytotoxicity. Um, And then we also had to do engineering testing before we could use it in human to make sure that it wasn't going to place too much pressure and that it was going to not break upon removal um, that a woman with a compromised dexterity in her hands could actually fold it and insert it properly without, you know, like an elderly population, we have to consider everybody and all the different things that could go wrong. So basically, we based all of this testing off of um, failure modes, effects analysis, and then did the test, the testing based on that, then we conducted a feasibility study, and um, then cleaning validations to make sure that women, because it's a reusable, can clean it um, based on the instructions for use. Um, And then, of course, clinical trials. So we did a feasibility study, took all of this information to the FDA, thought we were gonna get clearance, and they said, you know, we think there may be a placebo effect. We're gonna go ahead and have you manufacture a device that doesn't work and compare it. So (laughs) that was like a punch in the stomach. And I had to go back to the drawing board, figure out how to manufacture a device that's a vaginal insert that's not going to work, but that would have the placebo effect to prove that women, you know, don't tactically dehydrate if they believe that their product is working. So we did that, and that's called a blinded controlled study. And then we conducted those clinical trials over three sites across the United States, Stanford, NYU, and Thomas Jefferson University. And now I'm just thrilled with the data. I'm so glad that we did it this way because I feel like we're so far ahead of all of our competition and because we've done a very robust trial, we have a diverse population um, ethnically and socioeconomically and um, fabulous data. So we're presenting to the FDA like in the next few days.
0: Oh, wow. How exciting.
1: (laughs) It's so exciting. It's been it's been a ride.
0: So what is the competition like?
1: The competition as far as it's crazy. I mean, there's the transvaginal mesh surgeries, which I don't even consider to be competition. Um, the entire market is about a $20 billion market and $16 billion of that is adult diapers and pads. And so there's very clearly not a wonderful solution for everybody. Because I don't know a woman on the planet that says they would prefer a pad or an adult diaper. And so that's where I feel like it's really exciting for us because we're going to disrupt. It doesn't feel (laughs)
0: self-confident?
1: It does not. Okay. So that's where I feel like it's an exciting time for us because we're really going to disrupt the market.
0: It seems like you've invested heavily in in uh, intellectual property protection, Mm -hmm. not just in the U.S. but globally. Are you thinking about like a global rollout, or absolutely? Is your game plan be able to sell it in the U.S. develop a little bit of traction? And then one of the larger manufacturers would most likely acquire you at that point.
1: I mean, I think there are so many things that can happen. And so I can't say for sure. Um, You know, I'm looking for strategic partners. I want to partner with an organization that can really take us forward. And I have been so thankful to have been invited to the NIH. I was there last week um, in Bethesda, Maryland. and. Um, there's an innovation equity forum for women's health specifically. And I was advocating for urinary incontinence and um, showed the devices. And this is funded by Gates um, Foundation. And, um, you know, there were women there from all over the world that want our product and women in Africa, particularly, you know, there are populations that um, going to the doctor is just not really an option and so they need something that's going to be a little um easier to use and self-administer and um we need to provide that to women where they can you know meet them where they are and so i'm excited about that opportunity and i really want to provide these underserved populations with devices so that it would be wonderful if we could get some non-dilutive funding to scale that and i think it would just grow our business even further Um, But yes, the plan um, is to roll out in the United States um, initially and and scale and do a limited market release first where we already have a footprint. But I think it's going to grow relatively quickly because there's a big need.
0: So fundraising is a problem that every entrepreneur struggles with. If it were easy, everybody would do it. Mm -hmm. But it's actually excruciatingly difficult and it's impossible right up until the moment when it's not what was your story like raising your first money and then what have subsequent rounds been like Mm -hmm. and then going forward uh how much more capital how many more rounds do you need and then what is that potential strategic investor who could participate that could take your products to the moon
1: yeah um so yeah i mean it was bootstrap all the way um I basically spent my entire life savings on um, the prototyping and the first patent um, that we filed. And then that conviction,
0: how, why did you think you were going to win? Was the mission so important that you didn't care? Was it a combination of all of these things?
1: It was a combination of all of it and yeah. I just knew. I mean, I just knew. It was like and I tell people this and it sounds really cheesy, but it's 100% true. Yeah. Like I was fighting with God about this because I was so convicted and I thought, "Really, God, this is your plan for me. I'm the urine leakage lady. Thanks a lot."
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um but I felt like I just knew. I knew that it worked for me. I knew the mental health side of it and how depressed I was and how um, you know how many women suffer and I think that that's that was it. I mean I just I had to do it. Um, and so I talked to my family at it was Thanksgiving dinner and um, I told them I was like, okay guys you know I've got this crazy idea and um I mean I was student of life I have a little bit of a colorful past and so, they really um, embraced it. And and my mom was my first investor outside, you know, besides myself. And then my brother told me that he would help me raise the money. Um, oh, wow. And so he helped with some of those initial conversations. And there are people that he spoke to that said no right off the bat, and I never knew who those people were. And I think that was really helpful to have somebody with me on the journey. Um, And so he helped me raise the first $350,000 from actually a couple guys, one of them I went to high school with, um, who knew my family and knew my conviction. And I think that they just, you know, really probably more invested in me than, you know, vaginal inserts because they have no idea about (laughs) incontinence. Um, And so we conducted the feasibility study utilizing those funds. Um, And whenever our product worked for over 70% of the women in the clinical trial, um, and they only used one size of the device, um, then doctors started investing. And when doctors started investing, that's when everything else sort of started trickling in um, because they treat patients and they know the problem. And, and so I think once we started getting, um, you know, key influencers on on our cap table, that's when um, I had less trouble raising money raised venture capital. We didn't have venture capital here in Oklahoma. Whenever I first started this company, it was in 2016. And so whenever Cortado Ventures came on the scene, I was so thrilled to um, have an opportunity to present what I had worked so hard on. And so yeah, I'm really thankful to have you guys as investors in the company. It's been great to work with you.
0: Thank you. So how important is it to have venture capital at the center of a startup ecosystem?
1: Uh, Gosh, I think it's huge for us. I mean, and I refer to you guys as the good guys because I think not only do you elevate our company with capital, but also with your network, with the due diligence process is so stringent. You know, I think we uploaded over a thousand documents into the system for the due diligence process, and you still came back and asked for more. And um, so I think that because we got through that and it really helped validate kind of not just the concept of oh these vaginal inserts but the company as a whole and that we're a real company we have all of our documentation in place we've got our ip you know we've got strong partners and um, nobody's trying to sue us you know all of the things um so so for us it's been huge especially with such a heavily regulated industry, like having to go through the FDA approval process, I couldn't do this without raising money. We've raised $7 million at this point. And um, so there's no, I mean, as you know, I started in my early thirties, I could not self-fund this project. So um, it's been absolutely imperative.
0: How much progress had you made before Cortado invested?
1: So we had conducted our feasibility study. We had done um, biocompatibility testing. We had had several conversations with the FDA, but this was at the point where the FDA said we had to manufacture this sham device. And it was a little bit devastating, (laughs) honestly, because it felt like I was starting over again. Um, But we had already done some work, so we had proven the concept. I think we had NYU as our first site whenever you guys invested and I think that having a reputable organization um, to conduct the clinical trials really helped as well. So, But we had not conducted our clinical trials that have taken three years to complete.
0: Cortado invested when?
1: I don't know the exact date, but right around the beginning of the clinical trials so, that we just did at Stanford, NYU, TJU. It was 2020, right? Yeah. Close to whenever you guys first started. I don't know who all your first portfolio companies were, but I think we were one of the first ones. Got it. I think there were like seven total.
0: Well, that was also before my time.
1: Yeah, it was before your time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's the next fundraising round and what milestones do you need to hit before you get there?
1: Yes. So we're submitting to the FDA and so we're doing a bridge round right now between FDA approval and clearance because now we're assuming clearance. We have the data. We have our 510K together. And so I need a little money to get us through. So we've raised 600 in the bank for that. I've got another 400 approximately committed. I need another $1 to $2 million, depending on how long the FDA takes for that approval process. Um, and then once we have approval, that's kind of like D-Day, right? I mean, that's the day that I think the strategic partners are really going to want to come in and and really examine us as a company and and look at whether they want to acquire us or make a big investment like a 10 to 20 million dollar series A to go to market and get some traction to prove um you know sales.
0: What would your dream uh round look like for this bridge round in anticipation of that mark where you said the major strategic players would get involved?
1: My dream is the major strategic player, right? Right now. Yes. yes so i mean i i'd love to have i mean it's it's going great you know i mean we're able to keep paying bills so that's good i don't know if there's a dream partner in this bridge round you know i'd like to not raise in tiny little increments you know we've always had a hundred thousand dollar minimum um but it's still a lot of work i'd like a somebody to come in and invest 500 or even a million so that i can stop raising money and put it to work um so that would be ideal. Uh, have a little cushion there. I want to have money in the bank whenever we are negotiating a strategic partnership. But yeah, I mean the ideal strategic partner would come in and just buy us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> for the rest of this round, though, mm-hmm. you're thinking a few more players
1: mm-hmm.
0: for two million dollars remaining. Mm-hmm. And would you call this your seed round, your Series A
1: round? I know it's a convertible. It's a convertible. It's a convertible, oh, okay. it's a convertible note. Yep. So it's a bridge round between seed and series A Um, because we can't really do, I mean, we could do an equity round, but it's hard to set a valuation right now because we're so close to FDA clearance. I don't want to, you know, raise it at too low valuation. So, um, but the terms are very favorable on this round. Um, You know, we did cap the valuation. We gave it, offered a discount, offered a, an interest rate as well, so I mean it's advantageous for the for the investors coming on now still um, to get in.
0: What is fundraising like for a founder operating in the Mid-Continent region today versus when you started in 2016?
1: I think it's better today than whenever I started in 2016.
0: I mean, couldn't be a much worse.
1: It's definitely not worse. Yeah. Definitely not worse. But yeah, I mean I did raise money on the coasts early on. And I closed, I I closed $500,000 on an airplane one time. I mean, I, I, the
0: story (laughs) here. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, I just um, had personal things going on. I was on my way to meet, have a big meeting and, and this guy sat next to me and I thought I've got to get it together, you know, and prepare for this meeting. It was that night. And so I just started the conversation, you know, what do you do? Oh, well, this is what I do. You know, then. He asked me to send him more information, and I just pulled my laptop out and sent it there on the airplane on the flight to New York. And then he ended up, of course, the diligence process took some time. Um, we didn't; he didn't transfer the money on the plane. But he's been a great investor. He and his brothers, and and so yeah, I mean, you never know where you're going to raise money from for sure.
0: What I love about that story is that. really signifies that you're a true founder where you're so obsessed with your mission (laughs) you tell every single person in your life whether or not they want to hear about it
1: or not i'm sure it's very annoying (laughs) Uh,
0: but that's what it takes to move a mountain i have raised money from a previous airbnb host before And it's just one of those things where it's like, if it's seeping out of your pores, other people can't (laughs) help but like catch the bug. Maybe so. Okay, so some general questions we've heard about your journey, where you're at right now, looking back over your career outside of this current venture, Mm -hmm. what would you say has been your biggest success and what has been your biggest professional failure?
1: Oh my goodness. My biggest... Success outside. Does it have to be a career? Because I mean, my children. Obviously, I mean, I grew and delivered an eleven-pound baby, <laughs> and I have that a, br- a round of applause for me. I also have a brilliant teenage son as well. He's my first child, and they're both just my joy and and really my true purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're the reason why I do this because I want to create generational wealth for them. I think early, early on. Um, I started my career pretty young, and I think I just had a lot to learn. Um, so I made lots and lots of mistakes. I'm not sure that I can pinpoint one exact mistake. I think in sales, I was really um, aggressive. I was a good salesperson. I think that my team members didn't exactly love me. <laughs> and so looking back, I think I probably would have been a better team player. Um, instead of just so aggressive with my mission of trying to close deals. Well, you can't complain with the results. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I've failed a lot of times. I think I just try to forget those failures or learn from them. They pop back up in, in my mind and I remember maybe what I could do better next time, but I definitely don't focus on, on failures. And then, the, success. the biggest win, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest wins have all been within this company. You know, I mean, my patent portfolio I'm so proud of. Um, I'm named as a single inventor on them. And of all commercial patents held in the United States, I believe it's around less than 6% are held by women. So I feel very proud by that. Um, Also just um, like bringing on such great, credible institutions to conduct our clinical trials has been really important for me.
0: What do you know now about entrepreneurship that you wish you would have known at the very beginning of your journey.
1: Well, I don't know. If I knew how hard it was going to be, I don't know if I would have actually kept going. <laughs> so I don't know if I wanted to know that or not. Well, there's a yes. healthy
0: amount of naivety. Yes.
1: Yeah. I will say just as far as a heavily regulated industry, um, you know, a lot of people told me that it was gonna take a really long time and it was gonna cost a lot more than I thought that it was gonna cost. And I wish that I had listened to them and maybe raised more money early on and given up a little bit more equity early on because raising incrementally has been a lot of work. And and I really, really was focused on, you know, my earliest stage investors and not diluting them. And I think that that is important, you know, to try and minimize dilution but at the same time, having your company be capitalized is more important than, you know, somebody having 1.1% or 1% of your company, right? It's, you need the cash to keep going or they, or that 1% isn't worth anything.
0: Delicious is a luxury to worry about.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> Running out of cash. You feel that.
1: Exactly. And I'm worrying about them, you know, and not keeping my company afloat. And so... You know, yes, I've, I want to be fair to everybody and I want for everybody to have a good deal. But at the end of the day, I've got to keep keep this company going or it's not worth anything.
0: What career advice do you or will you give your kids?
1: Yeah, I mean, I am constantly telling them that there's always somebody that's smarter and better. Um, I think it's really important for for everybody to know that there's always somebody that's smarter and better. And when you find them, hire them if you possibly can, um, and not one, you cannot whistle a symphony, right? It takes an entire group to make a beautiful symphony. And so um, don't be afraid to bring on experts. It's what it's what keeps everything going. Um, constantly try to learn, you know, um, listen to other people's opinions. Those people that know more than you, that tell you things you don't wanna hear, I can promise you do not want to go to those meetings, but you have to, right? Because those things that you don't want to hear are what are going to help you move forward. And you've got to be prepared for the negative things that are going to arise and they always will. And so I think it's really important to have people on your team that you don't necessarily love hearing what they have to say. I mean, as, as long as they're experts, obviously.
0: So <laughs> what has been the hardest truth that you've had to learn the hard way on this journey? Maybe you've heard it from an entrepreneur, you've heard it from a doctor.
1: I mean, this FDA is a beast. The FDA is the hardest thing that I've had to get through. Um, And so all of the different things that come along with that, right? I think some of the hardest experiences that I've had is hiring organizations to help me get through this and then they don't do a good job you've got to hire somebody else you've got to fire them and hire somebody else that's the hardest thing is having to fire people and hire new people and find good talent
0: are these w2 employees or contractors or both
1: both i've had both
0: what is your best hiring advice for mm-hmm. employees and contractors and i oh, guess goodness. i mean firing could just vet be them
1: vet them Vet them, vet them, vet them. You know, I mean, go with your gut about people, but also vet them, don't just take their word for it. You know, call the references, get on LinkedIn, find people that you're connected with that know them and call them up and ask them what it's like to work with them. People can be really charismatic and good at selling themselves. Um, And so really you've gotta do your diligence. It's, it's just as important for the entrepreneur to do their diligence as it is for the investor to do their diligence, right? I mean, a bad investor is also unpleasant to work with people that call you constantly, um, you know. So, I would say, do your diligence.
0: What would you say have been the best dollars that you've spent and would have been the worst dollars that you've spent as an entrepreneur?
1: The worst dollars and the best dollars, interesting. Um, I've spent some, mm-hmm. let's see, the worst dollars, well, the most painful checks are the well, worst well, dollars? <laughs> we don't have to name names about who you spent them on, but we can talk about it in general. In I general mean, I one organization that basically, whenever you're doing clinical trials, they own your data. You're not allowed to touch your data and manage it because you can introduce bias, and so, in the beginning they quoted me $436,000 for start to finish. Now, granted, COVID hit and there were pivots that were made, but to date I have spent 1.6 million dollars for them for to, with them. I've written that much in checks to them and it's been very very painful because they have control over my data. And they wouldn't release my data until all of the bills were paid. So I had to scramble and go raise more money because I was way over budget on that one particular line item. You know, that's been a nightmare. I did. That was, I mean, we did vet them, you know. But I think, again, you know, whenever in the early, early stages people were saying, oh, FDA approval, it takes longer and it costs more. You know, I should have listened to that and raised more than I needed because I had to end up going and raising more anyway. Um, So those have been painful checks to write.
0: So with this specific situation where the cost for this line item, uh, they have your data. I mean, you're very much so beholden to them. If you would have had it to do over again, do you think that you guys could have had a little bit more robust uh, contingency provisions within the contract so that You weren't blindsided and that they could have footed more of the bill for changes that were needed on the fly.
1: There were a lot of things that happened. They had a lot of turnover. I have to take responsibility for my own contribution in this, right? Which I think is very important for every entrepreneur. I had never done this before, right? So my noviceness, I should have hired somebody to manage that, that research organization, but instead I was handling it myself. And so I had a lot of questions and I needed to know, you know, I can't just go for it. I needed to know I had a lot of questions. So there was a lot of explaining that had to take place. And I think it was probably annoying to some of the people that were working within that organization. Maybe they added some extra hours because they were annoyed with me. (laughs) I don't know exactly what happened. There were big mistakes, though, that were made. Um, But in the end, you know, we've got great data. It It's all clean. You know, I continue to work with that organization. Now we're on the back end. I'll never work with them again. And in the future, when I do more clinical trials, while hindsight is still 2020, and I know a lot more now than I did then, I still will hire somebody to help manage that. And because it, for me, it was just so close to my heart and so close to home that I just wanted everything to be perfect, and perfection is not reality.
0: I think you're speaking to something that entrepreneurs deal with on a regular basis. If you're working in a startup, if you founded a startup, you're always dealing with a capital constraint, Mm -hmm. and particularly before you've raised your first round, or maybe after you've raised a little bit of pre-seed money, but you're very undercapitalized as a business. Entrepreneurs always have this question, uh, sort of this build or buy? Or do I do something myself? Or do I hire an expert? And those Mm -hmm. are very precious dollars that you have Mm -hmm. in your bank account.
1: right now, I'm having that challenge with scaling, right? Because the manufacturing assets are expensive. Should I get a loan for them? Should I do a lease? Then somebody else owns them. Then there's like these different clauses. Should I give up equity to invest in it? Right. So, yes, you're right. I mean, (laughs) especially as you're giving away equity of your company, you know, there was something that cost $5,000 one time, for example. And in my mind, I know that we're going to get at least a 10x return on that. So in my mind, that $5,000 is 10 times that. Right. And so every time I'm spending money, that's how I'm looking at it. um, Because it all goes back to what we end up profiting in the end. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, so there's some area of expertise that you need to make an important decision Mm -hmm. and you're thinking about it in terms of, okay, well, if this decision goes wrong, what's the potential pitfalls? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what's the value added of expertise? Because it seems like you've gotten a good pulse on the heuristic of when to spend the extra dollars up front to be able to get that pound of cure on the back end. How would you recommend early stage entrepreneurs starting from day one? Would you say just try to do as much as you can for as long as you can and then raise money?
1: I think has been a good decision that I made early on because I didn't have a lot of money and I knew that I would need experts in particular areas. So for example, the regulatory side of things, our quality management system, I haven't even talked about that, Right? It's all of the documentation for just like our internal standard operating procedures and our document control system. Um, and then, you know, doctors. So in the early stages, I knew nothing about any of this. And so I actually gave away restricted stock options. So I gave away shares of my company to these experts. They were vested, meaning that they had to earn them over time. We had a very specific and clearly defined um, contract in place for what action items they would do in order to earn this stock. And now these people have skin in the game. So I'm still working with them and they, I still haven't written them a check, right? But they want for us to win just as much as I want for us to win because they'll get a big payday too. And so I think early, early on, you know, for me, that was a really good choice. And, um, And I'm thankful that that I did that.
0: I think that this is one of the more successful stories I've heard of equity-based incentives for advisors. I've heard a lot of founders say that they've been burned from it. They didn't have clearly defined agreements about what the contributions were going to be, and Uh. it sort of floated around in ambiguity. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like for you... You made sure that there was very clear expectations on the front end and the nature of your business, the product, the FDA process, uh, where you really needed that, that expertise and you found a way to make it work.
1: Yeah. And I mean, all of them were not perfect. So I definitely had to, um, again, dissolve some of those relationships. But that's where you just have to be aggressive. You can't be afraid to say, look, you're not doing what we agreed to. Um, Other times I didn't clearly define exactly what they were doing. Um, And so that was really early on. And again, had to just dissolve it, give them, give up some shares that I really kind of didn't want to. But yeah, I mean, there definitely was a learning process. I would say advice for early entrepreneurs is make sure that there's a very clearly defined um, deliverable um, for the shares. And also, you know, it's been really important having a board of directors. I think every company should have a board of directors. and um, It's wonderful because they have a fiduciary responsibility as well, right? And so they help me to look at things because I'm so passionate and this is just so close to home. I really need those, you know, objective opinions on, on you know, this bird's eye view of, you know, things that I may be missing while I'm in the day-to-day operations of the company. And they also earn stock. Who? The board of directors.
0: Awesome. Well, is there anything else about you or your company that we should include?
1: No, those are great questions.
0: Thank you. All right, I think that's good.